Hey there, it's Bailey Hancock, career happiness strategist, creator of The One Year Career, and your host of The Bailey Hancock Show, a podcast that helps people figure out how to make big career moves with small steps. Navigating your career doesn't have to suck. I'm here to help you learn to love the process. Hey guys, Bailey Hancock here. We are back for another episode, and today I have the perfect guest for you if you're one of those people who have for a long time or maybe not that long considered making some kind of career jump or change, but haven't really quite known when to do it, if ever to do it, you need a little guidance. I have the CEO and founder of When to Jump, Mike Lewis, here on the show today. So I'm going to dive right in because I would love to hear, Mike, from you, all of the knowledge you've gathered from the people you've talked to over the last however many years that you've been at this. Um, that have kind of given you an indication of what those general markers are for actually when to jump. So let's kick this off. So walk us through a little bit phase one of your career prior to when to jump, because I'm always curious about people's, you know, career evolution. So let's start at the beginning. Absolutely. And first, thanks for having me, Bailey. It's, it's great to be on the show. And I think what you're doing is amazing. And so I appreciate you having me join. Yeah. I would say that for my career, as I go to phase one and back up a little bit, I was actually working at a venture capital firm. Um, I had always been interested in entrepreneurship and working with startups. And uh, as a kid, would always fidget with ideas and, and try to create small business concepts in my backyard and in the basement. And so uh, I was very fortunate to start on a career where I could work with entrepreneurs and help them grow their businesses as an investor at Bain Capital Ventures, which was the venture capital uh, arm of a very large global private equity firm. Nice. What was, I always like to hear this from early entrepreneurs. Do you remember one of your kid businesses or ideas that you had growing up? Of course. My probably most successful venture. My, my most successful and favorite one would probably be a, uh, an eBay reselling business I started for my mom in her um, living room, actually, with my parents giving me trunks of old clothes and uh, at that point I, think I was 12 years old oh yeah it was right when ebay was was getting popular and i found this unbelievable arbitrage opportunity for chanel dresses and oh so, my god they uh, weren't even just like crappy old outfits they were chanel dresses you lucked out <laughs> well what what started as just a, a lucky extra dress from some dinner party gown trunk in my parents basement turned into me reselling chanel dresses for half the neighborhood and you know, when you take 25% commission and it takes you only an hour to pump these things out, you'd make quite a bit of coin for, you know, an eighth grader. So At 12, still probably that's most awesome. Adventure yet. <laughs> Seriously, I bet your overhead was, oh, I don't know, zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, re- free rent, as I recall. Right, exactly. Free dresses, free rent, good overhead. Man, mine was, uh, I lived on an orange grove growing up in Florida. Wow. And I decided that it would be brilliant if I just resold all of those oranges that were in my backyard. I love it. So I sat out in front of my house on the road with like a box of oranges and, you know, cars that would drive by, I'd like flag them down and be like, I have some oranges for purchase. I think I was trying to sell them at like a dollar an orange too. That's like avocado prices in California, basically. You know, it's funny. The other, the other small business I had was, was a little bit more material and serious is that when I was probably four years older, I started an internet education company and to all those who believe that the cliche of trying and failing is not the biggest learning experience and how, you know, everything has to go right. 
this was a great example. I raised money. We brought in a full-time team. I went off to university and the company didn't end up succeeding, but the people I met to go full, full circle this morning, we're redoing our, our whole platform through a digital architect and webmaster and guru who I first met. It must've been over 10, 11 years ago now. Uh, and that first startup, you know, that didn't work out. And I like introduced 16, me to the 17 people. years old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it was a killer website. It was a great idea. And we had great people. And one of them has stayed with me through a lot of different small business concepts since. And so even though that the company didn't ultimately work out on paper, it, it truly was the best learning experience. And it was a great way to meet brilliant people that I'm lucky to get to work with now. I mean, that's incredible. And that's something a lot of people forget about all of the jobs you take throughout your career that maybe aren't the, your favorite, right? They're just a job. That's only one piece of it. Like whether that company or that particular you know, job, if somebody has a job working for a company didn't work out is almost inconsequential. It's more important, you know, the people you meet, the experience you gain, the lessons you learn, you take that with you forever. Long past the day. Totally. Absolutely. And if you look at like biographies of well-known people or successful people or whatever you determine as yeah. role model in your own life, very rarely is it up and to the right. And we can talk about that a bit more when we talk about when to jump, but I think that's what is often missing in society is this idea of being vulnerable and being clear and knowing not we have the highest highs, but also you're gonna have the lowest lows, and that that's okay. And so um, I think that small startup got me interested in working with more people with big ideas, which led me to my job after college. But also got me curious around how successful people uh, make jumps that aren't always pretty, and how they go through the what I call ten thousand unsexy steps in making oh, yeah. things happen. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to hear about that concept because that's the whole goal of the one-year career is making big moves with small steps. And too often people gloss over those small steps when they've made the big move. They, how quickly they forget, you know, all the tiny little incremental moments that came between the moment they decided to pursue it and the moment they actually landed there. So I love the small steps. So after Bain, you took kind of a, a random left turn, so it would seem, to become a professional squash player. How did that happen? Where did that come from? And what gave you the guts to really make that leap? Well, most people leave Bain and go play professional squash. I wasn't the first. No, <laughs> I was um, like, whoa, this is quite, do they hire based on squash abilities? <laughs> no, no, no. So I was born in the East Coast and my, um, my dad knew squash. At squash is for those who don't know and you're not alone. Most people don't know what the sport is. It's a niche racket sport played indoors kind of like tennis uh, but you play against a wall and it's really big in europe but not that big in the east in the in the u.s and is it really kind of not the same that big. as racquetball it is very similar but okay just like i think it's yeah we view them as you know it's like the, the the i don't know what rivalry it would be but it's like kickball and baseball we don't think of them we think of them as kickball players uh, got it but uh, hey no, as a it's, former it's, rec league kickball player i won't take offense to that but you shouldn't i know <laughs> i actually really like kickball more than i like baseball so the the analogy is flawed we'll uh, but anyway yeah i got still some time to prep for these analogy pieces <laughs> but um no, I, you play against somebody else, it's super competitive, it's really intense aerobic activity, and it's awesome. It's, you can play in 45 minutes and have an amazing workout, but no one played west of New York City, very few people relative to the rest of the world. And we had one club within 100 miles of where I grew up, and I happened to join it with my family as a family gym and fell in love with the sport. And there was a tiny pro tournament that came around 
once a year and I signed up our family to host a player and over burgers and fries one night at, at our dinner table, I remember he said, you know, I, uh, I think you should go play this tour someday and, and you play on mountains in Brazil and you can play in tournaments in towns in Asia and, and cities across the Pacific and it just felt like this amazing adventure. And so I told myself, okay, at one point I'm going to do that. that. And then of course, as life gets busy and you go on the staircase, I, you know, it speeds up and you don't know when you're supposed to take a chance and follow your dreams. Uh, right. I found it somewhat scary and ironic that our pop culture, you know, very, you know, dream led uh, social media infused world and society is all around doing what you love. But when you get a job, it's kind of like, okay, well, I obviously can't leave this job. Right. So when, when, you you follow your passion? when do you jump? When yeah. You so that's if where I a found book about that. <laughs> yeah. I heard the writer's a cool dude. Flag him down. Uh, but yeah, I was just sitting at my office desk, January of 13 and sketched a cover page to what I wish would be a, a book, but really a broader community of people who could, you know, help me figure out, you know, what it looked like to jump, not the photos on Instagram, living in Bali, not the TechCrunch article of finding success right off the bat, but the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, the unsexy steps. Yeah. And I felt like if, if I could put those stories together, I would be able to jump, but then I could also help other people jump too. That's awesome. So this is when you're still at Bain, you're figuring out when is this professional squash career going to happen. So for you, so the when to jump stuff seems like it happened kind of simultaneously with this jump of your own, just as a, a reason to get all this great information from people. Yeah, it was actually one of those things where it came truly out of a specific need where I, uh, you know, for better or for worse, was selfishly looking for permission. I needed to hear of other people who had jumped. And I started sharing the stories that I collected from the guy next door to the bartender on the street to fellow bus passengers. And the stories picked up. And I said, okay, I told my buddy next to me at work, at some point I'm going to make this a community, but first I'm going to go play professional squash. And so <laughs> those stories helped me put my life into a bag and move to New Zealand and start playing. And sadly, it was when my buddy passed away when I decided you know, I need to finish this. I need to get this book out, this community built. And so I just, I pushed a little bit more. Unfortunately, a bunch of other really good things happened from there. So how does one, how does one pursue a career as a professional squash player? What are the nuts and bolts of that? It's a lot like the pro tennis tour, but a even more niche, lower paid world. So <laughs> you've got your Wimbledon of the world, which people can make not a bunch of money, but a decent amount of money and prize money. And then you've got your, on the other side of things, your single A, double A, triple A of the world, which is, you know, the minor leagues of sorts. And there you see a world where you're splitting 5,000 bucks, you know, 32 different ways. And you're staying with families to defray the cost of traveling and expenses. And that's what I wanted to jump into was, was traveling with folks who in one day would be my opponent. The next day they would be my, my wingman. The next day they'd be my coach. You know, it was just, it's an incredible community and everyone was going through it together. So it was a really special, special experience and one that I think is very rare, if not singular, in you're playing this professional sport, but you're also experiencing life and sitting down at stools at a bar or seats at a dinner table for all of these different worlds colliding all at once in every corner of the globe. I mean, I, I ended up traveling for what I thought would be three months turned into nearly two years, wow. 200,000 miles. 50 something countries, six continents, just had an incredible experience that just was made possible by 
people who who picked up on what I was doing and who who supported the sport and supported my dream to pursue it. So how does one leave Bain, which, you know, is a very serious company, a very, you know, highly respected company to travel the world playing squash? How does, I mean, even from a financial standpoint, because I'm sure there are people out there right now that are like, well, yeah, I want to do that. You know, do you have to save up for a long time? Did you just live frugally? What was your plan of attack for actually making that happen? Well, you know, I think what people get lost on in all this stuff is that you only see the success stories and it goes back to LinkedIn updates or social posts and Facebook news feeds. You're only seeing at the end of this journey, what it looks like, you know, glossed over with nice kind of highlights and filters and all that stuff. And what it really takes is a lot of, like I said, unsexy steps. And big part of that, which I get to in my book that's, that's now out or coming out is all around um, what I call the financial planning, the safety net selling, and the pre-jump practice mm-hmm. that come together to form the planning behind a jump. And so if you think of financial planning, you know, I pitched sponsors for a year and a half on my nights and weekends and used slideshow templates from work to, to try to raise money. I siphoned off my own savings account to create a fund. I did a lot of things that aren't that pretty to put together the funds to take this, this chance. Now, I understand that my situation was unique and some people are working two or three jobs and have a mortgage and kids. I'm not advocating that everyone should quit their job and, and go take whatever money they have to jump. All I'm saying is that it's actually possible if you break it into a lot of little steps. And so it might just mean I'm going to put away $5 a day. Well, Bailey, if you put $5 a day aside for a jump, that doesn't seem like that much, right? Like five bucks, you could probably do that. Well, after a year, that's nearly $2,000. Right. You can do a lot with $2,000. And so if you think of it in the long game, you know, it's like actually becomes viable, but most people only think in the short game right now. You know, that's, that's the thing I hear the most often is, well, yeah, sure, I'd like to switch gears, but I'll have to start over or I'll have to take a pay cut or I'll have to fill in the blank with whatever excuse. And it's like, yeah, you will. But if you're not willing to take those steps, you're not willing to make sacrifices, then you probably don't want that thing badly enough which is fine. It's good to know, you know, your priorities. But if you come to realize like, yeah, I'm not willing to go the distance between here and there. Great. You move on to something else. But best case scenario, you realize, oh, the distance is actually not that big after all, or the sacrifices aren't that huge. It's just money. It's just whatever. Everything's just something if you break it down. So I love that. Totally. Yeah. I think that's it. It's, it's, it's actually taking a step back from romanticizing some of this and being like, what does it actually look like? And that's what when to jump the book and now the community celebrates. So tell me about when to jump. So obviously it began as a reason for you to get to ask people how they made their jumps and gain all that wonderful knowledge, which to be fair is I feel like how most great things start when it comes from a personal need. And you know, at least one person wants this product. I think that's a really good thing for entrepreneurs to hear. Um, But for you, at what point did it go from being a personal mission to gather information to something that you realize could be bigger? Well, it started pretty early in the sense that I knew, uh, I knew I wasn't the only one that was thinking about doing something different. You know, like I said, there was a guy, you know, next to me at work. There was a, a woman down at the bar. There was someone on the bus. There's always somebody I was meeting. And I collected these stories first to help myself jump. But then ultimately the vision was that there could be all these other people that would find guidance from this as well. And so for me, that was what it was about, which was like, can we create a space that could be a stage where people could put up their ideas, their hopes, their dreams, 
and be appreciated. And the real goal was to create uh, meetups and, and in-person experiences where you could have beers from the person who quit their job as an accountant to start a brewery, have um, mock sticks from a guy who left sales to start a mock stick company, listen to music from someone who left being a teacher to start a band and meet other people who wanted to jump and be you know, kind of calling card and um, Trojan horse to a platform that would be much bigger. And so, uh, you know, I came back from the squash tour and had some stories in my backpack um, from, you know, the first female bishop in the Anglican church who left PR to go into the church. Wow. Um, the second baseman for the Cubs who left the Cubs to go to college. Uh, Michael Lewis, the finance author who left Wall Street to write books like Liars Poker and others. Mm. And then was approached, you know, by the right people. I had interest from publishers, signed a major book deal, used that money to bootstrap a, a, a community and a business out of it. A When to Jump became a brand. We partnered with Ariana Huffington, who approached me on behalf of the Huffington Post. We launched a media channel, and then we got like 3 million views on our first few videos, and all of a sudden, people were sharing their jumps with us from around the world. And we, we hosted our first festival, our first jump club in San Francisco. That's Cheryl incredible. Sandberg came to keynote it. We doubled in size just about uh, to New York the next year. And now we're going to look to, to double again in 2018 with London in the fall. Uh, and the podcast that we launched is, you know, taken off. It's a top 10 business podcast on iTunes and, and now have a book out. So it seems like that's all easy to gloss over, but I would say it's been five years in the making, five years of hustling with these stories, sharing them with folks like you and others who want to help um, celebrate this mission and, and then see where it goes. But for a very long time, it was just a lot of rejections. Well, sure. And that's, I think, you know, the piece that people do miss out on. I mean, because obviously overnight, Ariana Huffington didn't find you out of nowhere and come get you. Like clearly, you know, I have a feeling with you that your network has a lot to play um, in the success of all of this stuff, which, you know, I, I harp on it over and over and over again, but people can't realize the importance of building a genuine, good, robust network from the beginning, long before you need anything from anybody and continuing to build those relationships when you don't need something from them. Totally. I think that's so brilliant that you bring that up because it's, it's a lot better to get to know someone when you're just like looking for advice or, or, or interested in what they're doing and have no ask, you know, there's no like, Hey, I really need this from you. And most people miss that. They just, it's not, it shouldn't be transactional. I hate the word networking. I think that's the worst I know. We need a new word. Yeah. It's literally just like being yourself and like being curious because when you're networking, it's implied that you're soliciting someone for something in return. And instead it should just be like, I, you know, want to be able to learn what you're doing. And if you do that, you're just going to bump into a million more things than you could have ever imagined. So. Oh yeah. I mean, when it comes to meeting new people and just having a genuine non-scripted conversation for the first time, as long as you're open and you're willing to share, but you're also even most importantly willing to ask good questions of people, you have no yeah. idea where that relationship could take you. I have so many people say, well, I met this person at an event, but I looked them up and they, they're not in the industry I'm trying to get into. So I'm probably not going to follow up because they can't do anything for me. And I want to hit them. I'm like, what? That is not how this works. You have no, no it's not. who that person's cousin is. You know, you just don't know. And also people are humans, not transactional pieces. So No, beings. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So within, I mean, I'm sure you are up to your eyeballs in incredible jump stories. 
Do you have any particular overarching themes that emerge with people on either what made them finally make the jump or when it was the right time to do it? Well, I think what happens was that what happened was that as I got more stories and going back to what you said about the Ariana piece, like what I would say is it was very lucky that I was approached by her, but it wasn't lucky that when she asked what I was doing, I had three years of stories in my backpack. Mm -hmm. So that's the key is like get those three years Mm -hmm. of stories or prep in your backpack. And then as I say in the book, one of the pieces of what I call this jump curve of, of preparing to jump and doing your jump is is what Michael Lewis says, which is you have to let yourself be lucky. And that's where bumping into the right people come in. But it's only after you sow the seeds of friendships and relationships for no other reason than just met people. Right. No, absolutely. So So, to answer your question, I would say that my common finding is that people work really, really hard to de-risk the situation as close as they can to, um, to taking out the things they can control. And then when they're at that point, they let themselves be lucky. And they're at a point where they say, you know what, as bad as the worst case scenario seems, it's not as bad as not trying. Absolutely. I love that you just said, let themselves be lucky, because I think a lot of people lean too far on that side when it comes to making a change. Or um, I was just having a conversation with a friend who we were talking about Hollywood, and we both live in LA, and how the LA city at large is full of these people that romanticize struggle and just assume that they need to just one day be discovered or just meet the right one person and then it'll all fall into place when in reality that's such a small sliver of the whole piece and you have to come ready and prepared and able to take that moment of luck should it ever come to you and really make it something of value yep exactly so I think that's of, exactly it. Yeah. So of all of the people that you've talked to, I mean, you said it's been five years in the making. Have you seen anything change over the last five years? Because obviously we came out of a recession. Technology is just advancing at the craziest, most rapid rate. The workforce is such a different place than it was even 10 years ago. Have you noticed any changes in people's either willingness to take risks and make a jump or... I guess the outcomes once they have? I think that in this world, as we've seen in a million different examples, we just don't know what's coming next. Um, There's just a level of this feeling that there's uncertainty in any way you put uh, your life forward, whether it's you taking a jump or not taking a jump, you you know, you're never going to be staying at the same spot. And I think that's pushing people to say, you know what, what do I have to lose? Um, It, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you can, I think, agree that the 2016 elections were a point where you're like, holy cow, anything can happen. And I think people are looking at that in their own life and saying, I'm at a point now where I can actually take a chance. Um, this isn't, you know, a world in which you work for 40 years and everything stays the same and you get a golden watch and you retire. Everything's changing from business to politics to the social environment to technology. It's just, it's a different world. And I think because things are changing so fast, it's allowing us to feel like we can change with them. That's a very good point. I go back and forth about 2016 and 2017, then really, um, and the political climate and how, whether that's been a good or a bad thing. And I think one of the things that I can definitely say has been good has been seeing people kind of wake up, both from a social standpoint of them saying, oh shit, things are not what I thought they were, but also from a professional standpoint of, 
oh, okay, well, maybe I can do something that I didn't think I was qualifying for too. <laughs> because, yeah, totally. you know, there's a good example. We have a reality star as president and whether you like him or hate him, it doesn't really matter. But it does show you that you can kind of do anything you set your mind to if given the right opportunities and really coming with the right resources behind you. So I think it's a great thing. I'm excited to see how this changing landscape really lets people get rid of some of those fears that generally hold them back and, and just go for it. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent agree. So what advice do you give people who are at that precipice where, you know, it could, doesn't even have to be taking an entrepreneurial leap. I was going to ask too, are the majority of, majority of your community members and your stories based on people who have left corporate America to start their own thing? You know, at first I thought it would be that, but a lot of times what you see, especially in different demographics, is people just want agency over their life. And I'll give you an example. I got to keynote an Airbnb member conference last year, and we did a collaboration with them as part of it. And we had 3,000 hosts from the, and guests from the Airbnb community uh, from around the world. And we said at the end of it, okay, email our platform and share what your jump will be for next year. And we had nearly 600, 700 responses within 30 minutes. Well, and almost all of them were lifestyle jumps. Huh. It was jumps about having more time for your kids, having more time to create a career and a, a life outside of your work. Um, I want to be a mom and have, have a job as well. People wanted to learn languages and volunteer. And I think that redefined to me or expanded the definition of what a jump should be. It's not, I have to go start a company or open up a nonprofit. It can be, you know, I want to learn a language or I want to have time for my grandkids. And I think that's what we're seeing is people taking that decision to jump in a million different ways. It could be an internal jump within your company. It could be a side jump. It could be a professional jump. There's a, there's a lot of different ways it could go. No, that's, I mean, you're speaking my language here. That's what I try and get across with the one-year career. When picking a big move, big is relative, right? Your big move could be going from working 80-hour weeks to saying, actually, I kind of want a personal life again. I want to start carving in time to my weekly schedule to, you know, have time with my friends and family or work out in the morning instead of just giving everything to work. Of course, it could also be totally quitting your job and switching industries and, and making a full 180, but big move and your jump are totally personal and can be whatever you want. Yeah, 100%. I think we have to just stay grounded when we think of what a jump means for what a big move is or a one-year move is for each person that you're talking to. It's, it's always going to be different, just like so, how each of us are different. Right. I mean, and you know, we can apply these strategies, but at the end of the day, everybody's got their own unique set of motivators and needs and interests and curiosities. And that's the thing, though, that I come back to whenever I feel like, oh, what am I doing? Am I doing something that's original and unique and yada, yada, and all of this, all of the inner voices that we hear. And what I come back to is it's impossible to do the exact same thing as anybody else because we are all unique and we all have our own flavor to add to something. And my favorite Southern saying, there's a seat for every ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's good because it's like, no, you're right. That, that job is going to be perfect for somebody else and not quite for me. And yeah, there's no right or wrong. It's all just, we're all just doing our best to make our best guesses for sure. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, it's, um, it's one of those things where it's like dating, right? It's like, there's a pot for every top for every kettle or something like that. Like yep. someone that I'm attracted to, but my friend isn't like, that's just how life works. And someone's attracted to my friend, but not me. Like 
you can't force these things. Right. Yeah. It's, I always say careers and relationships pretty much are the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about it though, the thing that I like about the difference between the two is that you never have to fully commit to a career, which is awesome. Yeah. So you just get to be a career floozy your whole life and, and have a great time. <laughs> yep. Um, so let's see. So to kind of finish out this when to jump, um, bit of lesson here. You talked about these million, what did you call them? Million unsexy, thousand unsexy uh, 10, steps. 10,000 unsexy steps. Millions probably more realistic. Yeah, right. I know every little tiny move counts, you guys. Um, so for that analogy, when somebody is starting to kind of put the pieces together and they're like, okay, you know what? Next year, I want to make this happen. Whatever their big move or their jump is, what do you tell people for like the key steps that they need to take or how do they even begin to figure out what that very first step is? I would say you got to be really thinking tiny, you know, think super, super small, like take agency over your day, start a day where you're like, I remember the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK has this thing, Brian Skudemeyer, who's like bizarrely a thought leader on this stuff. Not bizarrely, but you'd never think of a guy who started a junk company, but you know, he's unbelievable. And he was saying, you know, he believes in 24 hour goals. And that's what it's about is like, what can you get done one day today? And then you can, you can open it up and say, what's my one month goal? What's my six month goal? You know, I think the book is filled with 40 something stories, a, a set of frameworks that follow the evolution of a jump. And it really starts with that basic building block of like, what's that thing you can do to listen to the voice in your head? That's our first phase. And so start super, super micro. And I think that's where you'll find you don't scare yourself away from this idea of taking a jump. That's very smart because often people get really overwhelmed really quickly with the thousand steps that they have to take instead of just focusing on that very first one. Yeah, exactly. Um, with your process, how do you, how do you deal with the situation, which is inevitable that, you know, you start out on this path and you're like, okay, I know that I need to make these you know, 10 small steps to get this, you know, get this party started. And then inevitably something comes up and you're like, oh, actually I need to, I need to change paths a little bit, or I need to go back to the drawing board. How do you deal with those moments that come up that, that cause you to have to kind of switch gears a little bit? Um, I feel like, to be honest, you only know some percent of your jump when you decide to take it. And I think you'd be kidding yourself if you're going to have a hundred percent certainty um, that's what makes it a jump. If it was exactly what you expected, it would be walking. Your feet would just go one foot in front of the other. It, a jump fair. is when you leave the ground. You know what you're giving up. You know the lifestyle, the, the comforts, the income, the benefits, the social cachet that you're giving up in a job, but you don't know what you're getting. And I think getting at peace with that uncertainty is the number one most important thing you can do is basically say, I'm at whatever it is, 50% certainty or 60% certainty, I'm never going to be at 100. If I spend the next year planning, I'm going to have diminishing returns. I'll have 1% more certainty, but I won't have 10% more. And right. so that's a comfort you have to get uncomfortable about. Like you need to be able to say, I, I don't know what's coming. I have a pretty good idea, but it's going to be worth it. And in that sense, and in, framed in that way, I don't think a jump is that scary because if I... And I wrote about this in the book, like the biggest fear I had was not knowing what was coming. And yet the thing that, that delivered the most value to my jump, the most important aspect of it was 
the unknown, the things that the unknown delivered, the people I bumped into, the places I went. I went you know, a year and a half longer than I thought because of things I couldn't predict. So don't view it as a negative, view it as a surprise. And the surprise is good because you've done the best you can to, to let yourself be lucky. <laughs> I love calling an unexpected situation a surprise. That sounds so much more optimistic. Oh gosh, so I true, didn't yeah. that surprise. <laughs> Yeah, that's so fantastic. I mean, I can I can absolutely back that up. I decided to move from Florida to California after getting my MBA to be a TV show host and immediately got here and was like, whoops, don't want to do that. This is a totally different industry than I expected. So I kind of, you know, did I view that as like a surprise, an exciting surprise at the time? God, no. It was more of a slap in the face. But, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh, yeah, I see how that all had to happen in order for it to eventually shake out the way that it did. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, you also have to realize that one thing, you don't go from A to Z. You go from A to B, B to C, C up to J, down to Y, up to Z, over to G. And then, you know, like, that's just how careers are. It's like. You know, we have a podcast I mentioned and, and Cheryl Sandberg came on it and said something that her head of HR said to her, which is careers aren't like ladders, they're jungle gyms. Yes, that's, I that's use that all the time. I think that's one of the best analogies to, to think about when looking at your overall career path, because you're right, we don't have the 40 year golden watch pension careers anymore, nor would I want that. That sounds awful, <laughs> but yeah, luckily, I mean, it's true. It's a different world. I mean, it's such a different world. Whereas I'm sure, you know, my parents, I know they look at my career and they're like, that is stressful. <laughs> that is full of anxiety for them because they're like, but you just got comfortable. I was like, yeah, that's about the time that for me, it's time to try something new. I mean, that's the first thing you should get. I mean, it, there's a great piece, not to mention our podcast again, but we had the former CEO of eBay on who I told about my illustrious career as a Chanel dress reseller. And he, one, thanked me for my uh, patronage. <laughs> <For your> early <laughs> adoption. Yeah, but he said something super interesting, Bailey. He said, you know, most people don't want to go through adversity, but if you look back on your life, where you actually grow the most and where you develop are times when you're pushed and pressed and against the wall and have to figure out something. And that's what forms your fabric. That's what creates your DNA and your identity. It's just unfortunate that it's tough times. It's, it's not usually good times when you just learn and grow. It's when you're pushed oh, out of your comfort. percent. Yeah. I mean, growth doesn't come from comfort as much as that would be lovely. It would also be incredibly boring. And I think it's, it's funny to think about people that have, I know people who have very, very straightforward careers. They're not jumping all over the place. They're not taking those big leaps but they have drama in their own life that I think they create because they are bored, but they're not willing to get that, you know, boredom cured in their professional life. So instead they're causing all this silly drama in their personal life to keep them interested. Right. Exactly. So don't be afraid you guys. It's not so bad. Yeah. All of the story. Any other major takeaways from the book, which we will absolutely link to in the show notes. I'm so excited to start reading it. By the time you hear this, it will be out. So definitely go check it out. But yeah, any major key takeaways? No, I think what you're building with your community is so aligned with the message, which is that, you know, find out what that big change is for you and take a bite out of it, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time. Um, we're actually you know, from our platform, we have a festival that's coming to uh, actually to London uh, for our first ever overseas jump club in October. 
if folks who are listening want to make a vacation out of that, more info to come. We have a newsletter once a month that we share that people can check out. We'll be teasing out parts of the book and, and sharing stories from our community. Our podcast features jumps of every type from people of all kinds. Um, and then the book, you know, the book is, like I said, 40 people, many of whom are everyday folks, mixed in with some public figures sharing the, the, the nitty gritty truth of what it means to jump. And so I'd love to hear what your community thinks about I think they'll find it aligned with your message and I'm you know grateful and, and lucky to be on the show I think what you're doing is awesome thanks back at you yeah big jumps big moves it's all the same you guys and all it is is just making actionable steps to actually achieving something that you think you want to achieve I mean the first step's the hardest but the rest are also kind of fun so it's all right well thanks so much yes. for being here Mike I really appreciate it uh all the best luck with the book. I'm sure it's going to be a massive success. So everybody be sure to check that out. Give them great reviews on Amazon. Cause I know that's important. And yeah, hopefully yeah. the last we're hearing from you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks Mike.